Hey, everyone. I want to echo Podge's observation. It's so beautiful to hear us praise and worship together. That's what a family can do. I want to read the word with you, uh, Luke chapter uh, 14, start in verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with his 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, if any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus, the word. Thank you. Thanks, Andy. Praise be to God. As we gather today on the Lord's Day, celebrating Jesus risen from the dead, it's also Veterans Weekend. We got to sing and worship, and uh, one of the guys in the band is also a veteran. So let's give a round of applause for the veterans here, thanking them for their service. Thank you guys. And as we dive in, it's been said these are some of the hard sayings, difficult sayings, but I think it's actually helpful sayings because as we see this third act, this uh, fourth act, fourth scene here, at the end of Luke 14, Jesus sees this crowd and he communicates clearly what it, what it really costs to follow, to follow him. And we see um, over the years growing up with commercials, MasterCard helped us out counting the cost. They showed a clip of a, a young boy in 1997 when the, their, their ad campaign began. Two tickets, $28. Two hot dogs, two popcorns, two sodas, $18. One autographed baseball, $45. And as the father and son sat down in the stands, real conversation with your 11-year-old son, priceless. Of course, MasterCard would count the cost for you and get that emotion stirring and be like, do you really love your money that much? You won't go spend that money to have that experience with your son. It's all about your son. It's all about those you love. And they counted the cost for you. And that's the same thing Jesus is doing here. He's saying, do you really, do you really love me? Let's count the cost of what it looks like to love. What does it look like to love your spouse, your family, your kids, your job? What are you really loving? And, and at what, in what order are you loving them? So as we've talked about this 8 to 15, the 8 to 15 people that make up the meaningful relationships of people from the four worlds, your family, your friends, your work, and fun, Jesus is pointing once again to that relational realm and say, okay, you love them, but do you love me? So, 
So as we acknowledge that, then why even in, in that realm, your family, your friends, those you work with, and, and your fun, your hobbies, why is Jesus always the cuss word? Why are all of the religions attacking Jesus, taking Jesus' deity away? Why are they twisting truth subtly and subvertly to make their God more palatable and claiming that we are gods? Why is today 500 people with the Pope, an imam, the Muslim leader, and a rabbi in Sinai where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, why are they having this climate meeting to have a new commandments? Why are they going all the way back to Moses and saying, let's, let's, let's take this one world religion and have this new commandments that we can refocus our, our mind on preserving creation. But we're going to, as the created ones, tell you how to do this. Why in the world are they going all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 where it says that God made them in his image. He made them male and female in the image of God. Why are they attacking that verse and saying, no, no, you can't use that verse to talk about humanity and morality and, and gender? Why in the world would you do that? See, if we count the cost as, as one of the great Greek football legend, Vasilius Seartas, had MasterCard count the cost, the commercial would run like this if we saw the commercial today, one Bible verse, 10 months in prison, two Facebook posts, $5,000 euro or 5,000 euro fine, knowing the way, truth, and life, and no one comes to God but through Jesus, priceless. That's what the MasterCard commercial would play if, if it played the commercial of Vasilius, who quoted Genesis 1.27 and if in two Facebook posts opposing a 2017 law that lowered the age of legally changing one's gender to 15, removing other legal barriers in the UK. He's a 49-year-old who responded saying, I hope that the first sex changes will be made to the children of those who voted for this abomination. Members of parliament may as well legalize pedophiles and complete their crimes against nature, he wrote. Sardis received 10 months suspended prison sentence and a fine of 5,000 euros. The Transgender Support Association, which brought the lawsuit against him, said that they're going against him with this lawsuit because it's punishing his biblical views, particularly it's very important for their transgender community. He said, I understand, or uh, David, Dr. David Macra said, I understand that this may be legalese, meaning that my belief in God and, and the dishonesty of using transgender pronouns is akin to Nazism. And he was fined and, and took his medical license away. The teaching of Genesis 127 is repeated throughout the Bible, including Jesus himself, said Andrea Williams, chief executive of the Christian Legal Center that represented Macareth. It is fundamental to establishing the dignity of every human person, but is in a bizarre, ironic twist being branded as incompatible with that dignity. So the world, this is no surprise to you in the corporate world. You've gotten emails for the past five, seven years. Hey, you can't do this. Change your pronouns on your email. Do this, do that. 
And you're, you're faced with a choice. What do I do? Do I resign? Do I quit? How do I respond? And, and, and that's where it ties perfectly into what's going on. And Jesus has a crowd before him in this fourth scene. And he says, look, I, I didn't come to get political. I didn't come to make your life easy. In fact, if you want to follow me, it's going to cost you everything. You need to count the cost right now. Because one day you're going to have to count the cost and pay up, and you need to be ready. And there's not going to be a surprise. Jesus didn't come to get a crowd, but through evangelism and discipleship to establish a church. The church that the gates of hell will not prevail against, meaning the church is on the offense. It's, it's, it's amazing, and it breaks my heart, because so many people who claim to follow Jesus— have been lied to. They said, just attend church. Just attend the crowd. They never opened the Bible and heard the words of God. They don't know Genesis 1.27. To, to post it on Facebook. As a 49-year-old, he's like, truth has to prevail. I don't care if it costs me 10 months in jail and 5,000 euros. We're preaching the gospel. And Satan has hijacked the gospel and neutered it and said, believe. Believe what? Believe in Jesus like my demons do. That's the gospel that's proclaimed in America. Believe. Jesus' brother James is like, good, good job, crowd. Believe. That's what the demons believe. Do you actually believe Jesus is your Lord and Savior? Jesus is saying, it's going to cost you everything. Do you really love me? And he uses this word hate, which we're going to explain because some of you are like, I already hate my mom and dad. This is nothing new. Sweet. Finally, I knew Jesus would agree with me at some point. Just had to wait long enough. Following Jesus requires the significant cost. First, hating our family and our lives. Literally, he's not saying literally. Figuratively, yes. In the Hebrew language, comparatively. We don't have that depth. We have a very shallow language in the English, as, I, as I've learned. In the Hebrew, so often it would, it would use this phrase to compare. So he's saying, look, you got to comparatively, you're loving me so much more that comparatively it's a lesser love that if you were to compare it, it would just be, if we're honest, hateful towards your family and your lives. Secondly, bear your own cross. Thirdly, you better count the cost, verses 28 through 32. And then lastly, renounce all that we have in verse 33. So this first question we're looking at as we think about how do we reach, how do we reach our 8 to 15? The, this cost of following Jesus, our 8 to 15, our family, friends, work, and, and hobbies and fun, how are we representing Jesus to them? First, the question is, am I willing to hate all other relationships to receive the love of God in Christ Jesus? You can take a pen or pencil and, and cross the word hate out because some of you, it might be a barrier. The rest of the sermon, you're like, he told me to hate. No, no, comparatively. Write the word compare and lesser love. If you're that, you know, some of you are type A, you're rule followers, you just, you're going to get hung up on it the rest of the sermon. And the rest of it is all about love. And that's, Jesus is speaking in that place, in that context, with that language, saying, I need to talk to you about love. And like we do in America, we have, in, in, in the English language, we have to stop and realize the same word that we say, I love hot dogs, we, we love our, our wife, and we love our God, and we love our kid, and we love our dog. Like, it's all the same. That's not really... In English, I learned very few things. I tried hard, but I only remember dead words. And it, it seems to me that both hate and love are dead words. 
Because comparatively, yeah, I, I hate Fords if I drive a Chevy. Like you see that all over, right? You hate the Dodgers because you love the Giants. Like comparatively, you don't actually like hate them and wish they would die, but comparatively, you love your team so much more. Maybe some do. It's debatable. We're praying for you, okay? Um, we can come up here and pray after the service. I know. You, hold on. But comparatively, that helps us kind of go, okay, that's what Jesus is calling us to, this complete sacrificial discipleship. And it's the same thing. When you buy tickets to these games, you get hit with all these convenience fees, printing fees, processing fees, email fees, viewing fees. It's like, what? You gotta, you're charging me to look at my transaction? Yeah, it takes time, you know. COVID, extra charge, COVID charge. You're like, what? There's all these hidden fees. And that's what Satan has come in and said, hey, here's the gospel. It's free, but there's a hidden fee, the cross. That's, that's only for the elite. And, and if you're really willing to pay. No, Jesus is saying up front, hey, crowd, you want to come? Great. Pick up your cross. Let's go. That's the initial call. The call was first discipleship. And then when everyone was carrying their crosses, suffering like Jesus, the world didn't know what to do. Like, we keep killing these people, and there's more of them. Every time we kill one Christian, there's 10. What happened? They're like Christ. And so that's where the word came from, because it started with disciples that produced this problem for the world. They said they're loving more than anyone else. They're giving and sacrificing and suffering, and we can't stop it. They're like Christ, because they're his disciples. How do we call that? They're Christians. And Satan's like, perfect. I can water that down, neuter it, hijack it, confuse it. But here Jesus is saying, look, I'm not calling you, I'm not calling you Christians, I'm calling you to be my disciple, to suffer like me. If you're going to follow me, get ready. The question first and foremost is, do you love me though? Do you love me above all else? Am I willing to hate, am I willing to love Jesus more than anything else in my world, all of my relationships, to receive the love of God in Christ Jesus? If I hate your family, the Lord does not literally mean bodily hatred. We care for our family. We provide for them as demonstrated of our faith, by our faith, through our faith. 1 Timothy 5.8 says, if you're not caring for your family, you're worse than an unbeliever. If you're not taking care of your family, you're worse than an unbeliever. So there is a caution to view your family, your wife, your, your, your husband, your kids, and to go, okay, am I, am I idolizing them? Or am I, am I serving them and am I caring for them as I should, but I'm prioritizing God as number one? Don't come to me, Jesus is saying, because I'm relevant. Don't come to me because I'm exciting. Don't come to me because I'm fulfilling and I'm going to make you a better spouse. Don't come to me because I will make you a better citizen, which is what we've seen, right? People take God's word and they go, oh, Republicans, God's word. Oh, I lost the race. I'm going to use God's word. And, and it's, it's this taking God's word and saying it's for me to be a better citizen or me to be a better politician. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 pick up your cross, follow me, be my disciple. Don't come to me so that I could fulfill your dreams and desires. He's saying, I will be the most relevant thing. I will be the most thrilling thing. I will be the most fulfilling. Yes, I will be the most relevant. I will be. But you have to come to me for me, not for me to do what you want me to do. I'm not a genie in a, in a bottle you just need to rub or, and I'll come out and grant your wish. You have to come to me because I'm a burning joy and strength. Because I am. Because I'm your Lord. Because 
I'm your life, he's saying. Don't come to me with your attitude. Don't come to me with your agenda and expect me to fulfill it. There's a perfect image as we think about this, this question that Jesus poses. Are you willing to be my disciple and renounce everything and love me more than anything else? And, and C.S. Lewis's um, fairy tales for children, and the, he picks up this image and this tension perfectly for us. And, and he has this little girl, like a sweet little girl who's inquisitive, would, would ask about Aslan the lion and be like, oh, cool, cute, a lion. Is he safe? And you've heard me say this before. If you haven't, um, they made a great um, movie about the books and stuff, and you could see it, but it's this perfect picture of an inquisitive, sweet, cute little innocent girl. Oh, cute, a lion, is he safe? And the response is, he's not. Of course he's not safe. It's a lion. How would a lion ever be safe? He's the king, but he's good. Jesus is saying, I'm not safe, but I'm good. He says, you have your life outlined ahead of you. Don't try and fit me into your life. Don't make me the means to the end. Before I go on to the next question, we have to see here, Jesus is saying, you got to put your agenda down and come to me and make me number one. Make me the desire of your heart. And then in Genesis 29, we see the story of Jacob who loves Rachel. And in the Hebrew, it actually uses that word that he loves Leah less which is a, a softer English trying to, but the word there was, would, in Hebrew is hated. He, he loved Rachel so much more that he actually didn't love Leah, which means he hated, right, in their English language. So that's where that word again sees how Jesus is saying, look, I want that kind of affection from you for me. Jesus is saying what he wants out of his disciples, I want you to love me. He did it for us and he requires it from us. Romans 5.8, while we were still sinners. It says, God demonstrates his love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He did it for us, and he requires it from us. So the question, am I willing to die to my own desires and plans to live by God's will for me? After we answer the first question, am I willing comparatively loving God first and loving less, or otherwise we could say hate all other relationships to receive the love of God in Jesus Christ. Once we say yes, okay. Moving on, am I willing to die to my own desires and plans to live by God's will for me? It keeps getting more costly. And here we see a helpful perspective, the kinds of love that Jesus is drilling in on Father and mother. We have in, in the Greek, there's four words for love. If you Google it, there's, there's eight that kind of stem from these four. But C.S. Lewis wrote a book called Four Loves, identifying these. So we'll just stick with four because four is easier than trying to figure out eight real quick on your fingers. So the first is this storge love, familial love, this familiar love of affection. Then, you know, the love of a husband and a wife, erotic love. Then looking at a child love, that's another kind of love. Love for your child is different than love for your parents and love for your child in a different way than you have love for your spouse. Then there are brothers and sisters, or brotherly love. Those might not be siblings, those might just be friends. And here's what Jesus is doing. He's taking every kind of love there is, every kind of human love. He's taking the erotic, the sexual love. He's taking friendship love. He's taking family love. He's talking about all these kinds of loves, this affection love, and he's saying, 
I want, and I offer a kind of love that will make all of those pale by comparison. I don't want this sentiment or warm, inspirational feeling at the end of a a sermon. I want a love as real as your love for your wife, for your husband, as real, as passionate, as interactive and delightful, and then so much more that it makes every other kind of human love pale by comparison. He says, I want to be the Rachel of your life. I want you to love me so much more that comparing anything else would realistically, the only way you could articulate it would be hatred because you love me so much more. He's saying you're not my disciple unless you have that emotional consuming all, every aspect of your love for God. And that's that, uh, that unconditional agape love with which he loves us. There's nothing we can do to outrun his love, nothing we can do to, to, to lose his love. He's always loving us. And that's where we see this comment that Paul makes in Romans 5, 3 through 5. He says, we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, character, hope. Where does it come from? And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. His agape love, whom he has given us. When I say it's searching, it searches me and it searches you. This love searches us out. And as we think about this challenge that Jesus lays before us, to be his disciple, St. Augustine says this is the essence, the key to our transformed character, to think like Jesus, act like Jesus, and desire like Jesus, is to have these loves, these loves reoriented so that our love for God is the same love he has for us, and it allows us to forgive those. So as you came in, maybe saying, okay, I hate my mom and dad, perfect. It's like, uh-oh, I have to reorient my love, and if I love God the way he loves me, that means I have to love my fa- I have to forgive my family unconditionally. That means the reason I hate them, maybe, because they hurt me, and, and hurtful people hurt people, and so now there's this tension where, oh my goodness, if I'm forgiven because of God's love with which he loved me, now I have to allow that love to flow through me and forgive others. And that's why Jesus is not talking about love and hate and, and the worldly English flat kind of dead word. It's, it's this all-consuming love that we receive from God and then we give out to the world. Is our love for God like the sun? So bright that all other lights are just unvisibly seen. Now you can maybe with the app see the star and you can get a telescope and look through the sunlight and kind of see a star off in, in, in the atmosphere. But really when you walk outside today, think about it. Okay, the love of God's pervasively so bright, in your face, undeniable. That's how that agape love should be received from God and be demonstrated by others so that anyone that comes in contact with you, your friends, family, work, or in your hobbies, they're like, dude, there's some... There's some kind of thing happening here. I don't know how is that. It's God's love. It's agape love. It's unconditional. It's, it's in me. It's flowing through me to you. What are you going to do with it? You're going to receive it or reject it? We must count the cost, though, because as freely as we receive it, we have to freely give it out. And that's where the cross comes in. As we count the cost, are you willing to die to your own desires and plans to live God's will for you? Because as, as I sat as a senior laying out my plans to become a firefighter and, and then this girl was kind of cute. I was like, oh, I'll probably marry her and I'll do this and do that. And my friend looked at me, he's like, dude, who, who, what? Sounds like you got the next 10 years planned out. I'm like, yeah, you don't. 
And none of that happened. Like nothing happened of that plan. And it's amazing because when you go to God and you say, okay, here's my desires, every last one. I remember telling my friend, yeah, maybe I'm just going to be single the rest of my life. I don't know. It's like, whoa, what? That's crazy. Like, well, Paul says it's better to be single. You can serve the Lord. I don't, maybe that's, I'm just going to surrender. Like, I'm not going to tell God anything and then he'll finally tell me what he wants me to do. Like, I'm trying to let, get God to tell me what to do here. And this is what Jesus said. If I'm going to be a disciple, then I can't love anything. So I guess I'm going to lose this love of this idea of a girlfriend and wife. So here you go, God. I don't love that anymore. And it was crazy because at that moment, God's like, finally, now I, can, now I can work. Maybe you're there. Maybe there's something hanging you up in, in your personal life. It's your singleness. It's your, your marriage. It's, it's your finances. It's your kids. And you just love it so much. You're holding on to it too tightly. You just need to let it go and say, okay, God, this is yours. And I love you first. Work. I'm going to get out of the way. What he's saying here, when we're counting the cost, what condemned criminal are you supposed to be identifying yourself with, with this cross image? This is what Jesus is saying. The essence of discipleship is to realize that you died already when Jesus died. You're identifying with his death. And Paul clarifies it in Colossians 3 when he says, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Over and over we see that when you become a disciple and follow Jesus, a better way to put it is in the minute you believe in Jesus, you died on the cross with him, and the Bible says you were buried with him. That means that when you also rose with him, Jesus is your identity. And, and how God looks at you is how God looks at his son. You've been crowned with thorns already. You've been speared. You've been nailed. You've paid it all. Your life is hidden with Christ. So Luke says in, in Luke 9.23, Take up your cross daily. Every day you get a reminder that your old self is dead and gone and your new self is living through the spirit and power of God. That's why we define a disciple as a humble servant. You're humbling yourself before the hand of God, saying, okay, Lord, when you want me to be lifted up, when you want me to sit down, you'll tell me to sit. When you want me to go, I'll go. And I'm committed to following Jesus, carrying my cross daily, burying your cross I have to confess, I got this wrong for years. I'd teach kids and students, and I'd say, hey, following your cross, following Jesus, taking up your cross daily, it's like the electric chair, you know, the death penalty. I was, I was preaching a false gospel. That's easy. That's too easy. That's a minute. That's an injection. That's an electrification. Jesus says daily, take up your cross, daily suffer, daily sacrifice, daily serve. That's a lot harder, the cross, the crucifixion. The perfect time when all everything aligned, Jesus came on the scene of humanity, lived and served under the worst political, cultural, religious backdrop, and died the most horrific, slow, slowly, every breath he took, he was feeling more and more pain until he drowned. And it's like, that's, the, that's why he says every day, you're, you're dying, you're, you're suffering, you're serving like me. Our crosses look different though, right? For some, it's family persecution. As we head into Thanksgiving and Christmas, you're already losing sleep, getting night sweats, freaking out. We're going to have to see this person or that. How are we going to interact, right? There's that for some of you. Maybe it's remaining sexually pure while you're single. That's your cross to bear. You're going to have to sacrifice and serve Christ and, 
and remain pure. For another, it's refusing corruption in your talk, in your workplace. Are you talking like everybody else? Are you desiring things like everyone else? Are you, are you being Jesus there? Are you carrying a cross where everyone knows? There's something different there. There's the love of Christ that's flowing through them, and there's a cross on their back. To be disciples, we must carry our own cross, but we carry a cross nonetheless. He says that the other way to get freedom, he says the only way you're going to overcome, the only way your parents think of you, the only way you're going to overcome the way other people think of you, the only way you're going to overcome even what your own heart and conscience standards are for you is to have God's love in you, flowing through you. It's to have God's love be the primary, that he tells you who you are, not your parents. He tells you who you are, not your boss. He tells you who you are, not the culture. Take up my teachings and follow me. Is not what he said. But so often that's the response. The feedback I get is, what am I supposed to do with that teaching? Well, Jesus already told you, take up your cross and follow Jesus. Go, go with the gospel. Go with Jesus. Don't take up this teaching to love. You're like, I can't love unconditionally. I'm not God. Exactly. Don't take up his teaching. He doesn't say, take up my advice and follow me. He doesn't say, take up the Sermon on the Mount and do everything. One of my friends was like, I want to memorize the Sermon on the Mount so I can do it. I'm like, oh, good luck with that, buddy. <laughs> Just take up your cross and follow Jesus. There's one thing. Like, let's keep it simple. It's God wants your heart. He wants you to love him. And then, and then when your coworker or your employee notices you doing something different, be ready to share the hope you have. Why you're different? Because God's changed you. It's not, he's not saying, I want you to do everything. I want sacrifice. No, I want your heart. Taking up your cross and following him is saying, I'm dying to my desires. I'm dying to myself. Yes, I love my wife and my kids, but I love you way more. And comparatively, you can't compare. This crucifixion is a slow death, a gradual death, a painful one. He doesn't say, pick up your electric chair and follow me. He says, pick up your cross. It's an ego crucifixion, really, of self-forgetfulness, not self-disdain. It's not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less, which is, guys, that's like, uh, what? Uh, say that again. I couldn't hear you. What was that? Think of yourself less often which means think of your spouse, think of your kids, think of your coworkers, your boss, your employees, think of their needs more often and mention them more in your prayers than you do yourself. That's where I've been convicted. It's so often it's like, Lord, forgive me for, you know, and then it's like, hey, help this person, okay, amen. It's like, wow, I'm a mess, yes, but they're, they need prayer and they need prayer and this person's struggling and man, God's got a plan for this church and and there's a lot of needs that we have as a church. How are we lifting each other up? And do we love God first and love the things of God? And so easily we can get distracted. And that's exactly where Satan wants the church, distracted and sidelined. But if I'm crucified with Christ, it's no longer I to live, but Christ lives in me, then all I am is following Jesus, preaching the gospel, and it's simple and it's clear. In every sermon, that's the application. Every time, Luke's telling Theophilus, a young new believer, hey, this is the gospel. Jesus said the gospel. Count the cost. I'm going to go pay the price for your sin. Count the cost for following me. 
When you show up to work the next day and there's an email about gender stuff or transgender stuff or how you got to behave, we already know what's true, but are you willing to lose your job to follow truth? There's a guy, Paul Schneider, and when Dietrich Bonhoeffer heard about Paul Schneider, he got his nieces and nephews together and said, guys, the first pastor in our group has been martyred. I got to tell you about Paul Schneider. Who's Paul Schneider? He was the first pastor in Bonhoeffer's group who did not bend the knee to Hitler and along with the other churches in Germany. Pretty much all the churches and mainline denominations said, Hitler, you're awesome. Sure, give us money. Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Paul Schneider didn't. Paul Schneider was going to become a doctor and, and he had all the brains and intellect and God got a hold of his heart and he started studying to be a minister. Right before his ordination, he said, I got it all up here. I got nothing in here. And I've, I've, I've heard stories and I've, I'm like, how in the, this is perfect. This is gospel. You know, you've seen it. You've taken your kids to Sunday school. They get it all up here. And then they don't have anything in here. And you're like, oh, how do I get it in here? And he did. He's like, I'm, time out. I'm not being ordained. He had enough integrity to say, I'm not saved. I don't get it. And so he, he went around and he ended up finding Dietrich Bonhoeffer and these group of pastors. He said, these are disciples. These aren't, these aren't Christians. These are disciples. They have it in here. I don't know. It's by grace through faith. Oh, that's how. It's by grace. God's grace saves us. Jesus died on the cross while we were sinners to show us his love. God showed us his love for us. By dying when we were sinning so that we might be saved, those who believe. And he's like, I believe. I'm saved now. I knew it all. I just never experienced it. I never gave God all of my love. I never died to myself and lived to Christ. My heart wasn't changed. And he says this, here, these people claim that they not only know Jesus and follow his teaching, but they possess him. And that's the question today. Do you possess Jesus? Do you love him and possess him that you're guilty of possessing him when people see you? They see the living power flowing through you. It's not just God's love in your intellect, but it's in you and flowing through you. And here I must say to myself, he said, you are not such a child of God. I'm not saved yet. He's like, I gotta be saved. I gotta, I gotta come before you. And Schneider said, I gotta... I have to profess this. He said, I was confronted with his own need for new life. He asked, may I step before the congregation tomorrow with the message of Advent that I've been waiting for, I've been longing and looking, and now I have the joy of Advent. Oh God in heaven, give me the gift of faith, he said. I have to put a question mark behind everything that I do. But you, God, can pour out your spirit of love on me so the question mark would turn into a joyous yes and amen. Maybe that's you here today. You're like, I don't know if God, I know he loves me. I just don't experience it. I don't, I'm not loving him the way he's loving, saying he wants to love me. And, and once you allow him to love you that way, then all the bonds break free. Then you can forgive. The Gestapo, the Nazis, they labeled his preaching of biblical truth, like I mentioned, is happening right now. You can't post Genesis 127 in the UK. You'll get sentenced to 10 months in prison. He, he was preaching the gospel. He was teaching the Bible. And because it was deemed psychologically deviant, they took him to a concentration camp. 
And it was in there, in two years he spent as prisoner 2491. In those two years he spent 18 months in solitary confinement because he continued to preach the gospel. He continued to have Bible studies in the barracks. And he, he told someone, he said, there's not one spot on me that has not been beaten black and blue. They've sick dogs on me. They've beaten me with bull whips. They fed me a regular diet of cardiac depressant, stofanthin, some fancy medical, strofanthin, that eventually was injected in him with such a high dose that killed him. And they gave his wife, Margaret, 24 hours to collect his body, and they nailed the coffin shut so they couldn't see how horrifically he'd suffered under their treatment. And this is the last thing I want to close with here. Every morning, Schneider's, his voice was heard ringing out loudly. Every morning for 18 months in solitary confinement, the whole concentration camp and everywhere else, even though the majority of churches they bend the knee to Hitler and said, yeah, for sure, whatever you want to do to the Jews, kill them. Who cares? Give us money. This guy said, no, this is what's true. And I've died to myself. I live to Christ, and I want everyone to know the truth. Everyone came out for roll call every morning for 18 months, and they heard him yell this. Our Lord Jesus Christ came into the world to save us from our sins. If we have faith in him, we are put right with God. We need not fear what men may do to us because we, through Christ, belong to the kingdom of God. Our Lord Jesus, who died for us, has promised that we, by faith in him, may participate in his resurrection. He said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me shall never die. Accept the Lord Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and God will receive you as his child. That was his word of encouragement every morning when they lined up for roll call, looking at death, they were Jews, they were Gentiles, they had no hope. All they saw was political demise, the world's falling apart, and here's Paul in prison, in solitary confinement, not the apostle, but Schneider, preaching the gospel every day. Not saying life's gonna get easier, not saying you're gonna be saved from, they're gonna be you know, liberated. No, come to God, he's your only hope. That was his encouragement. So my encouragement today is may we long to get Jesus, not things from Jesus. If you want to be my disciple, die to yourself, pick up your cross, follow me. Everyone in the world counts the cost. MasterCard counted the cost. Why don't you count the cost and follow me and see that this is truly priceless to know Jesus and be saved. To see that the love of God, the agape, unconditional love that's far surpasses any other love you've ever known or desired is yours in Christ Jesus and then it should flow through you to others around you but we first must count the cost and long to get Jesus for Jesus not things from Jesus so are you willing to surrender all your possessions to receive God's kingdom as we close with that last question are you willing to surrender all your possessions to receive God's kingdom? Once you get to that third question, it's a quick yes. Yeah, I've already, I've already put all my loves on the bottom shelf and I love you above all else. I've already been willing to die to my own desires and plans. I'm living for you, God, so obviously I'm all in for your kingdom. I'm not doing anything. I'm not holding on to any possessions. I'm willing to let it go to build his kingdom. So as we pray, 
We have an opportunity to take communion for those who believe and those maybe that are here have yet to trust in Jesus and and you're choosing to go and pay for your sin. And Jesus is saying, if you want to be my disciple, die to yourself and live to me. Die with me. I'm going to pay the price for you. Believe in me and be saved. Christ came into the world to save you from hell and prepare you for heaven. And it's this process that we're undergoing that reminds us that it's by God's grace we're saved through faith. So let's pray. God, as we come to you now, inviting those who may be trusting you for the first time, not of their works, but seeing your love displayed when you died on the cross in our place, while we were still sinning, you showed us your love, your perfect love, agape love, and that's the love that you've filled us up with as believers, and now we're calling us to pour out into the world, forgiving those who wrong us and hurt us, and continuing to proclaim that Jesus is our Lord and Savior to the day that you come back for us. And as we see the world getting darker, we know that your love in your church is going to shine ever brighter. And while that gives us joy, our heart still breaks for those who have yet to believe. And so we pray for those that may be receiving you as their Lord and Savior for the first time today. They'd be encouraged and strengthened and in your spirit and let us know. And those that are believing, Lord, that may we reorient our love as maybe we got off course. And these three questions may prompt us back to reorganizing and reorienting our love so that you would be priority and loving you with which the love we receive from you. In Jesus' name, amen. As we take communion now, we have elements. If you need them, you can just lift your hand up. We got them. some ushers passing them out. I'm going to give you a minute. Maybe you look over these three questions. Maybe you just sit and let the Holy Spirit encourage you. Hey, God loves you. And he already paid the price for you. Here's what he's calling you to let go of. And grab hold and possess Jesus. And I'll come up and close this in a minute.